Good afternoon, everyone. How are we doing? We all right? As my people in the shade, uh, I had to join them in the shade. It was too too hot for me in the sun today. Whoa. How are we doing? Right. Uh, first of all, before I get going and launch into Luke, I think what we all want to know is who signed up first this week, don't we? Yes, I'm sure you're really eager to know. And to be fair, this person has signed up first before, but this time they did it fair and square when I went out. So, a round of applause and come and get the prize. And the prize is probably whatever I can about minutes before service starts. And it is a brand new oh, notebook. Let's give Rebecca a round of applause. There we go. That's better. Thanks, Steve. Freshly backed microphone. Right. We are going to dive straight in. It is hot, so we don't all want to keep sitting in the sun. I'm going to talk fast, so pay attention. Um, we're going to dive straight into Luke 20. We're going to look at chapters 27 to 47. So hold on to your sun hats. Uh, we're going to go fast. Um, we're going to dive straight in. So I've, over the last few weeks, um, we've been looking at Luke and we've been seeing where these challenges have been coming to Jesus. Um, firstly, I was before I dive straight in, actually, uh, just a quick aside is I am just so grateful that we are going through the, a book in the Bible and we're going through it literally verse by verse. We're not skipping anything out. And we should be really grateful that we are part of a church that actually takes the word of God seriously. And that we go through it and we don't just uh, ignore bits that we don't like and we skip past that and we just pick the nice bits. Actually, we should be really grateful that we're part of a church that really wants to take the word of God seriously. Um, we're coming almost to the end of Luke. We will finish Luke by the end of the year. But can I just say, actually, we should be excited for what lies ahead in Luke and not just be excited for the next series, but excited for what God's going to say uh, in the rest of Luke. Anyway, diving back in. So, Jesus was challenged about his authority at the beginning of chapter 20. You remember that? Jesus was talking, gosh, I think we were in the building at that time, weren't we, when it was cold and wet. Do you remember those days? Um, and he was asked, then he moved on about whether he, Jesus should uh, pay taxes or not, whether the Israelites should pay taxes. Jeeves described it as a bit like a boxing match. The, the, um, the religious leaders of the time trying to land punches, um, and all these different questions are coming. And this time around, the blows are coming from a religious people called the Sadducees. Have you heard of the Sadducees? Can you say Sadducees? Now, they're not a happy bunch, the Sadducees. Jeez, why were they not happy? No, because they were sad, you see. See, anyway. <coughs> Come on, you know my dad jokes, Jeeves. You should, should have got that one. Anyway. Before uh, we look at the text, let's just uh, understand a little bit about who the Sadducees were, Jeeves. Sadducees. See, do you get that? Because they were sad. All right, okay. Anyway, 
So the protagonist in today's text raised this issue of the resurrection and it finds them on the opposite side of the Pharisees because the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They were this kind of priestly, religio-political movement that only accepted the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, carrying that as supreme authority. They disliked the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They tended to be quite rationalistic um, and why were by and large quite wealthy group of people. Despite their differences, though, when it came to Jesus, they joined with the Pharisees in trying to bring him down. Uh, the Sadducees were these extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. Um, they denied any resurrection of the dead. We see it in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and in Acts 3, uh, where, where they strongly um, opposed the apostles' preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. They denied afterlife, holding that the soul perished at death and therefore denying any penalty or reward after earthly life. They denied the existence of a spiritual world, i.e. angels and demons. Actually, it sounds quite familiar, doesn't it, to an attitude that we might come across today. And um, according to most historical records, including those of Josephus, the Sadducees were, were quite rude, arrogant, power-hungry, and quick to dispute those who disagreed with them. The Sadducees also ceased to exist uh, as a group around AD 70, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. Right, so we, we know who the Sadducees are. They're not a happy bunch. Okay, geez, why are they not happy? Yes, we're getting there. Right, we are looking at Luke 27. Chapter 20, verse 27. Okay. So it said, There came to him some very sad people, the Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. She's not having a great time, is she? Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord of God, the God he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. If you've got children today, uh, the memory verse at the kid, in the kids' work is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So you can ask your kids about that when you pick them up, straight after the service. So, just as a little reminder. So just to understand uh, where they're coming from, this custom of the Levite marriages where the brother of a man who died with no children would marry his widow, is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. 
her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So the Sadducees, the joyful bunch, came up with this scenario where each of seven brothers marry this particularly unfortunate woman and they all die without producing a child. And then mercifully, at the end of the story, the woman dies as well. I mean, yes, it wasn't going well for her, was it? I imagine she had trouble claiming on the life insurance about the third or fourth time round. But you wouldn't have wanted to be the third or fourth brother, would you, in the story? Oh, no, I think I'll pass on that. Anyway, the question they're asking is, who will this woman be married to in the afterlife? They're trying to catch Jesus out, saying that there is no resurrection or afterlife. Ah, but Jesus, if there was, which you think there is, who would she be married to? They think, ah, we've got him stumped here. They show the lack of logic, they think, in the resurrection. But they assume that the afterlife is like this life. They think this is an open and shut case. They think they've demonstrated the idea of life after death is absurd. It was a contentious issue because the Pharisees taught it and the Sadducees denied it. If we were raised from the dead, how could we possibly untangle all of these things that happened during our life and after death? Jesus can't say that they're all going to be married to this woman in the afterlife. And I think the, the way Jesus answers is how he has been challenging us in recent weeks with the scriptures we've been looking at. It's the challenge of the two kingdoms of Caesars and God's, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, giving to God what is God's, about what, how many feet have you got in the kingdom? Have you got a foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom where we need to be two feet into his kingdom? What are we ultimately building our life for? Are we building our life to be as comfortable and happy as possible now? Or do we really believe what Jesus says and what the Bible teaches that we will be with God for eternity? forever in a new heaven and a new earth so what does jesus say in his answer he says this again the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of god being sons of the resurrection now What might first stun us here is the reason that Jesus gives uh, for doing away with marriage in that age, that is, after this life. Notice the argument, it says they don't marry in the resurrection because they cannot die anymore. It sounds at first like the only purpose for marriage is procreation. So when the need for preserving humanity goes, since no one dies in the resurrection, the number of the elect will be perfect in the new heaven and new earth. Romans 11 mentions this, says, um, talks about the partial hardening coming upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when that moment happens, marriage will go. But this text is about the resurrection of the body. This means that when Jesus says no one marries in the resurrection, it's not because we don't have new bodies or have bodies. The point of the passage is we do. Jesus and the word of God does teach that there will be no marriage in eternity. And it may seem discouraging to those who are enjoying marriage or hope to someday enjoy marriage. 
in this life. But the word of God does indicate that we will know our loved ones in eternity. And surely the happiness and love of close relationships in heaven will be more rather than less than it is here on earth. Because heaven will be a place of perfect joy. In fact, marriage here now, what we enjoy on earth, is meant to be a picture of the foretaste of the far greater reality of union with Christ that we will enjoy in eternity. Great though marriage is, it is merely a preview of the, the reality that will come and it will no longer be necessary. Strange as it may seem now, it will not be missed. The age to come will, is not only an improvement over the, the worst here on earth, but also over the best. So we mustn't worry about being disappointed, but not being with the ones that we love now, because even gains are lost. But we need to the, the mindset of the Apostle Paul, who said the Apostle Paul didn't say whatever loss I had turned it out to be gain because of Christ. What he said was whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Christ is an improvement over the best, not just the worst. So we take the word seriously and this word in that Philippians uh, verse whatever seriously whatever gain I had almost underlining it in the verse indeed I count everything including all gains on this earth as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord so he, I can't imagine he meant Christ is better in this world, but in the w next world we will all bemoan the losses. No, Christ will be better than this world's best forever. Secondly, the apostle says in Corinthians, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. We cannot even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. If an infinite all-wise, all-powerful being loves us and tells us that he has planned experiences for us in the age to come that exceed our ability to imagine, then we can conclude that these experiences will be inconceivably better than our best pleasures in this world for the simple reason we just, we can't even imagine. Them. Anyway, there, there is no deficit in the age to come. Psalm 16 says, you make Known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Fullness of joy doesn't mean less than the joy that you know in this world, but more. And this world's best always leaving us feeling like there is more. Marriage is also not just for procreation. Of course, the Bible teaches that marriage is for more than pro procreation. Love making in the Bible is not merely just pragmatic. It is passionate. It's intended to be passionate. Um, a writer in Proverbs says, A lovely dear, graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's hot today, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, hang on, I just need a drink after that. That's better. And when we read about the wife in Proverbs 31, it begins, Proverbs 31 verse 10 says she is far more precious than jewels. Wives are nodding there. Yes, we agree. So husbands, 
Pay attention. Do you realize that if you do not honor your wife, who says in 1 Peter 3, who are heirs with you of the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered? Are you aware of that? If you do not show honor to your wife, it says in Peter, heirs with the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. Take it seriously. So you are to love her and care for her, to lay down your life for her, to love her as Christ loves the church. Don't be lazy. Don't make her do all the work. Be attentive. Notice her. Tell her you love her. And if you are not married and desire to be, then that is how you should treat a wife. Oh, that is how your husband should treat you. And if you are not married, ladies, don't set the bar so low so that any moron can just jump over it. We talk about marriage a lot, and this is partly what the verse is about, but not really. But singlehood is also not a disadvantage. Why God doesn't make marriage this eternal ordinance without procreation is that its disappearance clarifies what has always been true, that non-married people are the full beneficiaries of the greatest eternal joys. God has said to those who did not marry but kept his covenant in Isaiah, he talks to them and says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's clear this monument, this everlasting name is a position with no disadvantage to the not yet married or the not married in the resurrection since all are not married. Moving on. Jesus' ultimate point in saying these things is not really to teach us about marriage or the eternal state, but rather just to dismiss these sad bunch the sad, juices questions, and press on about the reality of what is to come in the future resurrection. And if they really knew their Bibles, they would have figured out there was a resurrection. He reminds them of the statement that God made in Exodus 3, verse 6, when he says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, who all died long ago. But if they were really dead and their souls have gone, it stands to reason that God would not have said, he was their God anymore, at least not in the present tense. He would have said he was the God of Abraham and Isaac, not I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. But instead he said he is the God of the patriarchs who must still exist and death cannot be the final word. As Jesus says in verse 38 in what we're looking at today, for all are alive. In Jesus' response, it is vastly more important to concentrate on the requirements for entry into the life to come. The implication is not all, where it's, he talks about at the end, such as his question is uh, worthy to record questions raised earlier in Luke by disciples uh, in 13.23. It says, Lord, those are those who are saved will be few in number. Jesus gives us clues about the resurrection, but not many, only that it will be different from the worldly one slightly different with some respects beyond the capability of a human mind to imagine again what paul said in 1 corinthians 2 what no eye has seen no ear has heard what no human mind conceived the things that god has prepared for those who love him we can't even get all of our minds around it so jesus here doesn't just offer objective mathematical proof to refute those who deny resurrection but his answer is grounded 
in the testimony of scripture and faith in God and looking for undeniable proof kills faith. The more important fact of life cannot be proven like the fact that you love your spouse and they love you. It, proof comes from living with someone, being able to look back and see the evidence of love and commitment from past events. And there is proof here when Jesus cites from the long story from the Torah of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that show us that God isn't just a God in general, but a God who binds himself to people and individuals. Jesus then proceeds to say in his answer, and it is wonderful good news that his presence is with us in high points and low points, sleeping, grieving, suffering. He never leaves us or forsakes us. His presence is with us and will not cease even when death overcomes us. If God didn't forsake Israel when it turned away from him, he won't leave the individual at death. Just as he didn't leave the Israelites to be slaves in Egypt in their bondage. The same way God didn't abandon his elect to the power of the evil one of death. He will deliver them from death in the resurrection. Our relationship is not terminated with God by death and he wouldn't allow an enemy of his death to destroy what that what means so much to him that is you and me romans eight thirty five says who shall separate us from the love of christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution famine nakedness danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered Knowing these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, height, nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are implications for the choices we make now, and it impacts the next life. At the end, of it all, Jesus says, all who live to him doesn't simply imply universalism, but actually those who are worthy to attain that age, that is resurrection from the dead, is, are those that choose Jesus in this life. It is such a reminder of the short-term nature and foolishness of just building your life for now. Not realising that everything we do now can impact what happens in the next life. We, of course, live by grace. We are saved by grace. But are we building for the kingdom that is coming? And at this point, nobody asks Jesus questions. So instead, he kind of turns the tables and goes on to ask them something. Um, moving on into verse 41, he says, uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 41, he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honour of feasts who devour widows' houses and for, for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Wow. In summary, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. He's asking, how could it be that David is talking 
about his descendant in a child when he's calling him my Lord. So the conclusion is left understated here, but the point is obvious that Jesus is the only one that can make sense of all of this because he is God's son born into the line of David. He's the one that can secure our eternal life and he can promise us life in an age to come which makes giving up everything we have now worthwhile. I think God has been focusing in. Jesus is highlighting over these last few weeks the two kingdoms and only one is worth living for. His kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. He's really been speaking, I, I believe, if, if we've been listening over these last few weeks about which kingdom we are to choose and live for. That Jesus is after a zealous people, ones who love him more than anything else. The ones who love God and love their neighbour. The church would be the most vibrant, exciting, alive place on planet Earth if there was a zealous people for Jesus, if everyone put him first. Is God trying to wake up his sleeping, apathetic church? And in these times, we've got to say, God, what are you saying in this? We don't just want to get out of the pandemic so we can just get back into our comfortable building. No, we want to say, God, what are you saying to us in this time? Are we just too comfortable in this? Do we want our own comfort? Do we want church a couple of times a week and then, you know, we'll fit it in around the rest of our life? Or is he looking for a zealous people? And the posture of the religious leaders towards Jesus is in sharp contrast, contrast with how we should embrace Jesus, like Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus did earlier in Luke. They greeted Jesus with great joy and total devotion. The scribes and chief priests were only interested in playing games and trying to poke holes in Jesus' teaching instead of embracing the good news of the kingdom and acknowledging David's Lord is their Lord and they will turn their backs on Jesus and miss out on the total joy of discipleship and eternal life. They were more interested in the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honour, making long-winded prayers. They were more interested in looking good now than their reward to come. They received their reward. And the same choice lies before us today, to abide in Jesus' teaching gladly and find joy and blessing in it forevermore. Or will we be so busy trying to find loopholes in his claims and his commands? It doesn't quite mean that. I'm not sure if I'm ready to sell everything I've got or be... God, if you call me to do something, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. Are we going to be simply trusting in him, following him? But by making excuses about the busyness of life, family, career, all other things get in the way. I think scripture has been clear to us over the last few weeks. He's after our total devotion. He's offering you eternal joy that is unimaginable. He's offering you a life now in its, all its fullness. But by going our own way, by making short choices, short-term choices that will bring us comfort, takes us off of his path. Only in total devotion to the Son of David, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will you find peace and rest and everlasting life. He calls you from darkness into his glorious light. He calls you from a life searching for meaning into a life with meaning in the kingdom. To see his kingdom come and his will be done. And 
with Jesus in position as Lord, we see how powerful our Saviour is and what his position entitles him to in the future. He was the one who God had given all, the Father had given all authority to give us blessings of grace. If you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else. And will those things be enough? Will those things ever die for you? No, they won't. But he has died for you. He is the one who before him all enemies will submit in light of his great power and position. And we should be fully responsive to him. If we ignore him, we are turning our backs on his divine authority. And we recognize he is Messiah and Lord. It causes us, we need humility to walk with him. Our responsibility to Jesus is greater than any other being. As we stand before him, not as peers, but as servants. That's why Paul so often begins, begins his letters at, as a servant of Jesus Christ. He knows who is Lord. I just feel God has just been stirring us up over these last few weeks. Whose kingdom are you really committed to? Yours or his? We shouldn't let pride get in the way of any decision you might want to make for total and utter devotion to Jesus. And to make that decision today, if you haven't yet, is to follow him and give your life to Christ. Why don't we stand and pray? Thank you, Jesus. Let me just close our eyes for a moment and put our hands out to him and say, Lord, we thank you that you have been speaking to us. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your amazing word, Lord, how you've spoken to us through the word of God. And Lord, how you've been speaking to us through it over these recent weeks. Lord, we want to live a life completely committed to you, devoted to you, Lord, but we get distracted. We Go off track, Lord. And I want to pray for us as a church. I pray for Hope Church, Lord. Help us be a zealous people for God, those who love God and love our neighbours. Lord, help us have a love for one another that is just so vibrant and exciting that when people come in and go, wow, look how much they love each other. Lord, I pray. Jesus, I pray, let the... the, the um, the clanging bell, the, the trumpet sound of the gospel go forth. And let us, Lord, as individuals, Lord, help us proclaim that. Lord, help us not get sidetracked in these times. So many distractions, Lord. Help us just be totally and utterly devoted to you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for everyone, Lord, today. Will you come and meet with them afresh? Will you bless them as they go? This week, Lord, I pray for divine appointments, Lord, they are able to share their faith with you. Lord, give them all they need. I pray for their daily bread right now. Come and fill them and meet with them again. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, there endeth our session for the day. Um,